Welcome back to the Thrive Subscribe Podcast. This is Mike Denninger, one of your hosts, and I have the pleasure of sitting in the room today with the other host here, uh, Randy McDonough. Say hi, Randy. Hey, Mike. How you doing? Doing really well. Uh, so today, uh, Randy and I were uh, thinking about, uh, you know, just kind of talking about uh, some of the top trends in independent community pharmacy. Uh, and we're using a list that was generated back at the end of 2018. Uh, we're obviously into 2020, so about 18 months later. Uh, and we're just going to go through some of the ones we thought were uh, of particular interest and talk about where we're at compared to what we may have thought before, uh, what's interesting, and, and where we think things are going uh, from, that, uh, from that standpoint. So uh, I'll let Randy kind of take off into the first direction here. We know, Mike, as we think about our practice and we think about the trends that we're seeing and the things that we're concerned about that most community pharmacists are concerned, whether you're an owner, a manager, or an employee, some of the things that um, I was looking at when I was trying to determine what are the trends, these are things that really came out at me as far as what's scary and what, what can impact us in a negative way. One is flat growth overall. Another one is decrease in average sales per location. The third one was decrease in gross margins, decrease in payroll expenses, an increase in cost of goods sold, fewer staff positions, and a decrease in the total number of independent pharmacies. So those were seven things that really kind of jumped out at me as far as, you know, if that's the trend, that's not a very positive way of looking at where we're going with our profession. And I think there's a lot more positive going on than that list might imply. So let's just kind of start from the beginning and, and look at this, you know, the first trend that you kind of mentioned would be flat growth overall. And do you think, Randy, is that, are they really just talking about prescription volume or are they talking about overall sales and other services? I guess that one kind of confused me. Yeah, they're really talking more about um, the total prescriptions being filled in a pharmacy. But I think that is even misleading because I see as we work with payers, and they see the value that we can bring to the beneficiaries and improving the total cost of care, reducing the total cost of care, improving the clinical metrics of patients, I actually see the trend shifting where they're gonna want their beneficiaries coming to a pharmacy that not only provides the product, but provides the service behind that product to ensure the medications are being optimized so they have the outcomes that they're looking for. So you're kind of envisioning a transition where employers and, and insurances are looking to push patients to pharmacies that are doing these additional services and uh, behaviors. And, and so while overall maybe prescription volume would be flat uh, to maybe even negative, in the community uh, realm it might be a little more positive if, if things come uh, in the direction that you're talking about. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a really good insight. And then the second one, Mike, which I think is interesting, is decrease in average sales per location. And we all worry about that. But again, that seems to be more focused on just uh, prescriptions and you know what you're making per prescription. So if that was the case, they would be right. Well, and they, they certainly didn't foresee what has happened to us here in, 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 in you know, the United States and in all over the world with this pandemic. I mean, our overall sales volume of over-the-counters is significantly down because we don't have patience of any volume in our store. We've either deliberately closed the door or as we have now in our case, we're allowing just one person in and then we're not giving them the ability to, to shop around. So our ability to make those kinds of sales have decreased. Uh, and additionally, of course, you know, with the pandemic, we see a decrease in a lot of the elective surgeries and other things that are going on. So we're left really with just maintenance medications. Uh, but that isn't what they were talking about. 
uh, they're just talking about the a decrease overall in prescription volume. And uh, I look at our, you know, uh, our bottom line and what we're basically doing for revenue, and there's so much more involved than just prescriptions. Absolutely. In fact, you know, when I look at our revenue that we're generating, yeah, there's still a large component of it that has to do with the prescription, right, and dispensing of a prescription. But there's a just another large component that's growing and evolving year after year of the revenue that we're generating that's outside of the prescription. It's really about the services that we're providing. It's about getting paid for those services, whether it be by a third-party payer or it be by the patient themselves. And as we start to increase the number of services that we provide, there's going to be more opportunities that way. And it's not just um, services, but as you and I know, some of the things that we've been involved in that other pharmacies are getting involved in too is you know, the opportunity to work with other stakeholders within the community. They see value, they pay you for that value. They want your expertise, so they pay you for that expertise. So we're also seeing new ways of making revenue based upon our experience, our expertise, and just our abilities to uh, help people problem solve. Excellent. Here's another one, Mike, which kind of fits in with that too, is decreasing gross margins. And that's always a scary one. You know, as you look at um, different publications like the NCP, NCPA Digest and you see what you need to be making on average as a gross margin to be a very viable pharmacy. So it is scary, but again, that's focused more on just the prescription. Yeah. And of course, we've seen dramatic reductions over the years in you know what we make on uh, typical maintenance medications. And, and, our, and our friends, the pharmacy benefit managers, have done a very good job, and I say that in quotes, uh, in basically decreasing what they're willing to pay for for very vital and important medications to the point to where you know we don't even make what they uh, what they uh, cost us anymore. Uh, never mind that we have to spend time to make sure the patient's getting optimal value. And so that kind of brings about going back to you know services and other payers, uh, the value that pharmacy provides and where that revenue uh, needs to come from and, and how it can supplement that decreasing margin. Yeah, in fact, if you look at it from just the perspective of the prescription and the decrease in the gross margins of that prescription, you would almost have a tendency for those patients that are not, if you will, quote unquote, profitable for you, that you could not really care if they did come to your pharmacy or not because you're not making the money. But what I look at, and I tell this to the pharmacist, is I want access to lives. I want my patients not to leave me. One, it's because I'm loyal to them and they're loyal to us. But I also see that there's the potential for us to have a patient be involved in a payer program. We, can, we have patients who get um, within a disease, disease state management program for which we become a provider for them and get paid to provide care. If we don't have that patient coming to our pharmacy anymore and you know because the gross margin wasn't the best or they went elsewhere because they're in a preferred provider network, we lost that potential opportunity for new margins because of the new services that we're providing and getting paid for the service side, not the products. Yeah, that's really insightful because one of the things that, that really speaks to me when I'm up, uh, out and about in, in the pharmacy is the number of patients that we have that come to us for one thing, let's say it's for a CPAP uh, or for diabetic shoes, that we end up providing additional services too. And so those are new revenue streams. And if we don't have them coming into the store in the first place, we've got really very little opportunity to, to uh, sell them on that opportunity or that, that service and make that uh, an addition to our, our margin. Yeah. I tell you what's, what is next, Mike, and actually there's two of them that kind of go together, and one is decrease in payroll expenses, 
but also fewer staff positions that kind of go with that. So those two kind of go together. And as you know, we never took that philosophy. Well, we didn't. Uh, and, and it's actually very timely as well, because with the pandemic, uh, we've seen most businesses contract because their they're overall uh, you know, workforce that they need to do what they do, if they're doing anything at all for that matter, has gone down. And in the case of our pharmacy, obviously we, we did not decrease our, our workforce for that. Uh, if anything, we've done, uh, we've actually increased our workforce during the pandemic, but that doesn't just speak to this time. We've been increasing our workforce uh, for a long time. What was it? Uh, one of your uh, friends and colleagues that works in a major chain uh, told you, it's like, how many pharmacists do you have working uh, right now? And you said, I think it was six. six. And he said, well, that's five too many. Well, every one of our pharmacists is very, very busy. Uh, and they're bringing in revenue and they're bringing in bottom line. So, you know, if we're hiring somebody, the expectation obviously is that they're going to be able to make more money for the pharmacy than they're costing us. And that's obviously the goal. Uh, but you can't make it in business if you're not willing to spend some money. And where are you going to spend it? You're going to spend it on what? You're going to spend it mostly on staff and also on inventory, right? Those Absolutely. Those are the two areas that you're going to be spending it on. So, you know, the other thing I want to say about that too, Mike, is you know we've taken a lot of criticism as we were building up our staff because they say that staffing model cannot be viable. And what we've shown is that as we've increased the staff, we've also increased the revenue. So there's an expectation that that staff member in some way is creating an opportunity for new revenue to be made. Yeah. And we've done a very good job with that um, as far as you know, making sure that that revenue is following what that staff member is costing us. So I, we could not exist to where we're at today, nor could we have been as successful working with the payers that we've worked with without having a staffing model that we have. We talk about Slack resources, and people always ask, what is that? That's having the resources, the personnel that are there to make sure you can handle some of the services that otherwise would be challenging if you only had a skeleton crew. Okay. So that Slack resource, those extra staff become extremely important. You know, it's, it's interesting that you talk about that because when we first started looking at the numbers, when we started increasing our staff, you know, we're expecting to see uh, the percentage, uh, you know, compared to the NCPA Digest, uh, that we're spending on on uh, on staff uh, go up, and it did initially. But you know, as we've brought in new revenue from having additional staff, we've actually seen that number basically come back to where that national average is on the NCPA Digest. Uh, so I think it's important to recognize that you got to spend money to make money sometimes. Oh, absolutely. And I tell you, Mike, what's always interesting looking at the NCPA Digest too is the profitability factor. And so you're right, you know, when you look at payroll expenses and things like that, initially we were kind of outside the normal range. We're back within the normal range, but our profitability is so much higher. So again, we've taken more staff, but we made more revenue with that staff. Yeah, and that kind of brings us along to, to the increase in cost of goods sold. And that one is kind of counterintuitive as we've seen generic depreciation really strong over the last several years. But what, what are you thinking they're talking about when they talk about increase in cost of goods sold? Well, I think what they're talking about is, you know, you're paying more for, for the product itself. And by paying more and getting paid less, it's reflecting your gross margins, right? And so that is probably a true thing. But that statistic or that trend makes me realize even more why we're making the right decisions to not move away from the product, but put the focus of our efforts and new revenues coming on the service side. And then working very closely 
with our wholesalers and, and other stakeholders to make sure we're getting the best cost of goods sold. Because that's still going to be important because that's still a, a component of this thing. But it also makes you realize you've got to be on the service side. If it's all about just dispensing a medication, you're not going to survive in the long run. Absolutely. Which comes to the last one on this particular uh, trend, which was a decrease in total number of uh, independent pharmacies. That's kind of a sad trend because we've seen that happen. But I tell you, what I've also seen happen more recently is how pharmacy has responded to the decrease in reimbursement um, to prefer provider networks for which you might be shut out uh, to specialty pharmacies taking over some of your uh, patients' medications. And so now you're siloed and you're not getting that, that patient coming for that. But I tell you, I've seen pharmacies respond in a very favorable way. And one of the things that's been exciting to be a part of is a clinically integrated network such as CPSN USA, um, where they're helping pharmacies develop their practices to make sure they can provide enhanced services, get paid for those services, and, and work collectively so that we can go collectively to a payer as a group and saying we have this group of pharmacies that have great regional coverage and we can provide services for which we can get paid and demonstrate it mm -hmm. provides value to your beneficiaries. I see an increase, to be honest, if our vision works, which we really believe it will, I see more pharmacies opening up with that philosophy in mind. It's not that they'll be totally divorced from the product, because they won't be, but they will be there to help patients optimize their medications and be part of the community to ensure that those patients um, are achieving their outcomes. It's funny to say that, because that's exactly where I was going with, with my thoughts on this one. One of the interesting things I've observed as, as uh, you know, just being out there and talking to folks is that there's a large number of pharmacists that are I don't want to say disgruntled, but they're not happy with how they're practicing pharmacy. And more and more of them are looking to start their own pharmacies. And we've seen a little bit of a resurgence in the independent market in certain areas of the country for that reason. The other thing that's interesting is a lot of the new graduate pharmacists are having a harder time finding a position that they would like or even finding a position at all. And more and more of them are looking at new and innovative ways to start practices that aren't necessarily focused entirely or even at all on dispensing. And so we're seeing an uptick in a independent community pharmacy market, but it isn't necessarily a traditional independent community pharmacy market. We're seeing uh, a lot of consulting type businesses uh, with pharmacists going out there and, and trying to pitch their, uh, their, their skills to employers and to other uh, health, health uh, organizations and actually find new ways uh, to be a pharmacist in the, in the new millennium. In fact, with the platforms that are existing out there, you know, we talk about tele telemedicine, telepharmacy, you used the term telecommuting. What do you mean by that, Mike? Well, it's, it's, we've seen this happen with the pandemic. A whole, whole lot of different industries have uh, you know, decided to keep people at home to keep them safe. Well, one of the things that's very rapidly emergency, emerging in this environment is that a lot of companies are recognizing there's not as much value that, as they put on it initially to having people all in one place. Now, there's obviously going to be some synergies that happen because you've put people into a building, into an office uh, to work together. But that might be a little overstated in a lot of industries. Well, pharmacy, as it turns out, may not be as different uh, as we thought it was. I mean, I, when I first thought with the, with the pandemic coming out, well, who can we send home? We all have to be here. 
Well, I've got friends who are pharmacists that haven't been into their workplace uh, for quite a while now. They've actually been working from home. And that is something that I would never have considered even possible, uh, you know, six months ago. Uh, but it certainly has happened, and we're seeing more and more innovative ways uh, and ideas coming out of this, uh, like a lot of businesses that, you know, is there really a good reason for every pharmacist to have to be in the pharmacy? And there's, there's quite possibly not. We've got lots of things that we do on a daily basis that don't necessarily have to be here with today's modern tools and good Internet connections and, 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 uh, and environments at home. I totally agree, but I tell you what also has made me realize during this pandemic is the importance of a community pharmacy because we become a resource to the community, to that patient. As you said, we may have seen a, a decrease in volume only because other providers had to close their practices, and so we didn't see the acute medications. We still saw the maintenance medications, but our patients relied on us. Well, absolutely. We had several doctor's offices that weren't even seeing patients. The hospitals in our area literally weren't doing anything outside of ER care because of the worry about overwhelming their e ICU beds and admits. So they were very, very careful. So people weren't able to get to their primary health care provider. And as a result, at least in our case, we saw a very large uptick in us having to actually work with patients and help answer their questions and solve some of their problems outside of the, you know, the traditional realm that you would consider a community pharmacy. Well, including giving, you know, injections of long-acting antipsychotics. You know, we had a lot of patients who had lost their care provider to do that so they came to us to be able to provide that for them you know we still had to provide some immunizations for patients and that's going to be a big thing as we look at COVID-19 as they develop a, a vaccine for that you know it's going to be very important that there's access and that's still a value of community-based pharmacy and that's a trend that we don't talk about is that access we're an accessible point within the community we're a resource to the community we're a health stop within the community we need to be part of that community and help um, the community become healthy and help patients achieve their outcomes. And that's exactly why I got into pharmacy almost 30 years ago now. Yeah. You know, Mike, you know, as we talk about what's the responsibility of the pharmacist, another trend that I see that's a positive trend is that I do believe pharmacists are going to be held more accountable. I've always used to say that, you know, pharmacists need to be interventionist. And what I mean by interventionist is they need to identify and resolve medication-related problems. They need to ensure that patients are achieving therapeutic outcomes, and they need to make sure patients are on safe and effective medications. That means you have to think constantly. You have to review that patient's medication, whether you're doing it as a sit-down, uh, comprehensive medication review, or you're doing it on the run, you know, during the workflow, which we do a lot of that here. But I do believe that pharmacists are going to be held accountable um, by stakeholders out there, accountable care organizations, health systems, payers. And so we really need to take that responsibility because that's where we're going to get paid for services. And, and a large part of that responsibility is that communication back to the other stakeholders with that patient, uh, whether that be a faxed uh, note to that provider or maybe uh, working with an electronic health record uh, like uh, uh, an e-care plan, for example. You talk about the e-care plan, Mike, and I think that's a trend that I really didn't talk about, but I do see documentation, right? And it's not just the e-care plan format. You know, I always talk about e-care plans being the noun, care planning being the verb, right? You and I, in our practice, maybe didn't have a platform initially. We created one ourselves, but we did have a charting system that we provided care for patients, and we documented that care. Well, that's the care planning process. I see that this just becomes the norm, that if pharmacists are really going to be paid for their services, 
They're going to have to have proof of the pudding. They're going to have to make sure they're documenting that care. And I'm seeing across the country more and more pharmacists understanding that is an important role. If you didn't document it, you didn't do it. And payers got to know you did it. And that's one of the big values of, of an electronic health record like an e-care plan. It gives, us, it gives us that proof, but it also allows us to communicate that in a, hopefully a seamless way. Uh, ultimately, maybe not right now, but right to the provider that we're working with. Yeah, and that's going to be emerging you know, over the next uh, couple of years more and more, along with um, electronic health records being shared, because that's still you know, not, not, uh, a challenging time for us where we don't always get the electronic health record, but it seems to be getting better, and we just have to work through some illegal aspects of this. It's, it's interesting, because, you know, obviously pharmacies for a long time, since, you know, really about when I graduated, have been uh, investing in pharmacy management systems. Well, I see every pharmacy uh, in the next few years having to invest in at least an e-care plan platform, but if not that, maybe even just an entire electronic health care record, just like a physician's office would have. Uh, why? Because the, the amount of data that we need to collect and keep track of and communicate with others is just going up uh, exponentially on a, on a daily basis almost. Yeah, and I'd say the last trend that I really see happening, Mike, um, that's going to be a positive trend is that pharmacists will finally be recognized by CMS and other major payers as a provider and really get paid for the services we provide. I absolutely agree, and I don't think it can come quite fast enough. We're seeing some uh, you know, additional help on that line because of some of the things we're seeing because of the pandemic and the response that the pharmacy community has had. Uh, you know, it really has, has driven home the point that you know, we, we, we need to be able to be paid for those services that have been very valuable to both the patients and the payers, and the biggest payer, of course, being Medicare. Absolutely. Well, Randy, this has been a lot of fun, and you got to stop by more often. I do. And that's an inside joke, of course, because Randy does work.